<clears throat> so, again, we are reminding ourselves of sort of the structure of Jude, that he, he started with the, the welcome, the, uh, the, the hello, the first couple of verses where he reminded all saints that, that whoever is receiving this letter and is in Jesus, whoever holds this letter and, 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 and can agree to the, the following things, to you, this whole letter is written to, to compel you to contend. So the first couple of verses said those who are called, who are beloved in God the Father, and who are kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that all Christians, we've reminded ourselves, are, are united to God, to, to Christ, in, in and through God's own authoritative, declarative act, whereby he joined us to Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go and preach verse 1 again. I really want to, but I'm going to keep on going. He gave us that introduction. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then in verse 3, he told us what he's writing for. He said, I wanted to write a nice little letter that you could pin up inside in your living room. I wanted to write about how, how happy we all are with the common gospel salvation we have, but something more urgent came up, not just reflecting on what is already true, but the urge to compel you about the necessary task, which is to stand up, stiffen your backs, straighten your knees, strengthen your arms, and fight for the faith. That's what he compels them to do. So that's verse 3. And then in verse 4, he told us why. We must contend, verse 3, because, verse 4 told us, there are certain people among the church who are rising up, as has been written about in the past, both by the apostles and the prophets long ago, that there will be false Christians, false contenders, who, who come in to pervert the grace of God, to turn it into do whatever you wish with your life, and who reject the authority of God, particularly through the Scriptures. They, they twist and they misinterpret and they deny the authority of God's word. That's what we were told. So verse 3, we must contend. Verse 4, all the way to verse 16, will be telling us why we must contend. So just extrapolating on this reality that there are people in our midst and people coming into and people around and people outside of the church that seek to pervert the truth of God. And then in verse 17 and onwards, we'll come back to the, to the how we persevere, how we contend. But for now, we have some very colorful verses from verse 5 through to 16 of his, uh, his very colorful, extreme, and radical language about those false teachers. Look at verse 5 and 7, 5 through to 7. And tonight we're going to read three Old Testament examples of what he's just told us in verse 4. People who come in, they try and pervert the grace and authority of Jesus. Here's three Old Testament examples of people who tried to do that. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. May God bless this, the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. So already, just by doing what he's, he's, he's done there, just by even going back to ancient times to use as an example for the people that were in his day, which are no doubt also in our day, just by doing that, he has offended people. 
Because people today, whether it's cult leaders, uh, world, re world religion leaders, uh, 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 heretics, false teachers, whatever it is, they always want to believe that they are new, unique, and progressive. They're improving on what has been in the past. They're improving on what has been historically believed by Christianity, but actually there's new revelations. We'll talk about new revelations and angelic dreams next week. They, they want to believe that they're somehow improving. They're, they're better than the conservatives. They're, they're better than that old-fashioned old, uh, uh, you know, old type of way of believing. We have something new, unique, and novel given from God. And he's already offending them by going back to the ancient days and saying, these guys are, are as old as truth itself. Error always, is as old as truth because as long as there has been truth taught from heaven, there have been people on earth perverting it. So he's just telling these people, you're not new. You're not creative. As, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. These people find themselves in the rank and file of the ancient heretics, the very same type of people that were, were then back in, uh, uh, back in uh, Genesis and back in uh, 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 all the way through to Sodom and Gomorrah. All that time, those are the same types of people we have today. They're not new. He's offending them that way. They are, just this, they are as old-fashioned as the truth itself, even though they are trying to be new. But we, we love what, what Spurgeon said. He says, if anything is new... Reject it. Give me that old, old gospel, that same one that has come out of the apostolic generation, that same one that has been prophesied since Genesis 3. We are not hungering for new things here at Hope Church. We stand on the shoulders of generations that have gone before us in as much as those generations have been faithful to the apostolic word preached in the first generation. We're not trying to be cool. We're not trying to be new. We're not trying to improve. We're not trying to progress. We're going deeper and deeper down setting our anchor in the very first given faith once for all delivered for the saints. Amen? Amen? So here these people are trying to be the new guys and he just tosses them to the side saying they are committing the same errors as the ancient people did. Look at verse 5. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus destroyed the Israelites. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus judged the angels. And then thirdly, that Jesus punished Sodom and Gomorrah. So already, Jude says in verse 5, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, and so he, basically what we can understand, the reason he doesn't go into so many details in these three stories he brings up is he fully expects the people that he's speaking to to already know those old, those old stories. These are, these are the old tales that, that Christians grow up, especially the Jewish community, much of whom would have been in Jude's uh, uh, audience. They would have known these stories. And so he's saying, I know you know this, but I'm calling it to your remembrance. This is just such a good lesson for us as we think about Christianity, maturing, sanctification, knowledge and theology, uh, so much of the Christian life and maturity is, is exhortation on the basis of what we already know. Uh, like, like how many of us will hear what we were going to hear tonight through Jude and say, yeah, I pretty much already knew that. I, I might not have gone out here with, with, with altogether a hundred new points of information that I didn't know beforehand. Now, now, it is good to be continually learning the depths of doctrine, and I would hope and pray that each Sunday you'll, you'll come in and each time you read your Bible you're learning something new. But, but maybe if 10% of our, of our time in the Word is learning new things, 90% of it is reminding ourselves what we all already know and pressing ourselves into conformity to that teaching. 
Is what Peter says, the same thing. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. What you already know, we need to say it again. Because if we keep on assuming things, and we see this happen generation throughout the church, if we have taught something and assume that our young people know it, or assume that we all agree on it, but are okay for it not to be said, you have to get ready for that truth to go into forgetfulness. You have to keep on saying it. How often do you hear from people, why do you keep on talking about this? Or why do you keep on bringing that up? Because the Bible does it. And unless we, we continually remind ourselves, continually preach on these things, continually go back to those things of first importance, continually preach on those things that our culture and the church culture wants to silence us on, we have to push back and say, why do you have a problem with it being said over and over again? It has said it, we must repeat it by way of reminder. But look at what, he, what it is, in fact, that he's reminding them. What was assumed and known for most of the Jewish and, and, and Jews and Christians in the first century, he says, what you already once fully knew, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Look at this, how, how, how he speaks of the fact that Jesus... God the Son, before he was incarnate and was properly named Jesus, the man, before that, God the Son has still always been the, the mediator between God and man. So that even before he, he came and was incarnate and he achieved the accomplishment of his covenant by which he was made king over the human race and over all of eternity, before he was actually established in that covenantal kingdom, yet God the Son was still the, the mediator between God and man. So that Jude picks this up and says, actually, it was not just God who led them through signs and wonders out of Egypt. It was Jesus it was the Lord Jesus Christ before he was incarnate. Even before uh, Jesus was incarnate, we see him prefiguring his carnation. Right? He was prefiguring himself all throughout the Old Testament. Any time that we find Jesus, uh, rather any time that we find God meeting with mankind in some kind of physical way, uh, uh, we can assume that, it, sorry, in any kind of humanistic um, uh, anthropomorphism kind of way, whenever it seems like there's a person there that's representing God, we know that it was in fact God the Son. He was the one who walked with Adam in the garden. Abraham met with him in the person of Melchizedek. Jacob wrestled with him. Moses and the elders saw him. Joshua met him as the commander of heaven's armies. Isaiah saw him high and lifted up on the throne. In Babylon, he was in the furnace with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Paul tells us that that generation in the wilderness drank miraculous water from the rock, and he says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He led a people out of Egypt, not in human form, but in the form of cloud and fire. It was Jesus who warred against their enemies. It was Jesus who kept them alive when the wrath fell over at Passover. It was Jesus who disarmed the false gods through the plagues. It was Jesus who split the Red Sea. It was Jesus who led them to the mountain to receive the law. It was Jesus who gave the tablets of stone to Moses. He was the one who was worshipped in the million people congregation at Mount Sinai. And he is the one who is God before all time and now and forevermore. When we see these redemptive acts happen in the Old Testament, Jude just told us that was Jesus. It's Jesus who saved the people out of the Red Sea. And yet, 
his mediatorial role between God and man is not just saviour. It's not just that all salvation has been appointed to him so that all salvific acts happen through his person. It is that. But his mediatorial role also includes judgment. As he said in John 5, all judgment has been now entrusted to me. Well, even before his incarnation, God the Son was largely the one enacting the personal judgment of God. Look at what he says in verse 5. He did save a people out of the land of Egypt, but then he destroyed some of them. And who did he destroy? He afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This means that it was Jesus who stopped them from coming into the promised land. It was Jesus who, who, who poured out his wrath onto them and said, you will not enter my rest. It was him who destroyed that generation in the wilderness. So that rule, deliverance, redemption, all of that was given to Jesus, but so also was judgment. What he's talking about here in verse 5, we're going to see three main sins that he speaks about. One in verse 5, one in 6, and one in 7. The main sin that he's addressing in verse 5 is the sin of apostasy. The sin of apostasy. Apostasy, or, or the person who commits that sin is an apostate, is somebody who, who on the outside, and for, for, for anybody looking on, they think that this person has taken on the covenant of God to themselves. Their lips have confessed, they have outwardly been baptized, they, they take of the communion, they attend the church, they do those things they think they ought to do. They, they do those things Christians do, and yet inwardly they have not truly believed and repented, even if they intellectually believe some of the right things. So that first John will tell us in chapter 2 that these people commit the sin of apostasy when they leave that which they, uh, which they, they thoroughly had confessed beforehand. This is not the same thing as not accepting the gospel. This is not the same thing as not being a Christian or having backsliding moments in your life. This is the kind of sin when people walk away from the faith they once fully understood and engaged in under the, under the title of something else. So now I'm an atheist. Now, you know, I read a book and I, I understand more stuff and I'm an atheist now. Or, or maybe it's, no, look, I still believe in Jesus, but I just don't believe the Bible says anything of relevance today. I don't think I have to come to church. I can just, I can just have my own personal relationship with Jesus. Sometimes that's what apostasy looks like. Sometimes apostasy looks like going and joining a cult, uh, like the Roman Catholic cult, or, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the United Church of the Kingdom of God, or the Mormons, whatever you take, the, the leaving of the truth that they once knew to embrace folly through unbelief is the sin of apostasy. And we learn that Jesus judged that generation who committed apostasy. That generation which saw the miracles in Egypt saw the plagues, saw the, 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 all of the external signs. This is one of the proofs for us that, that more miracles and more signs and more information will never be enough to convert people. The most wrath, uh, 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 punished generation of, of, of the Old Testament was the generation that saw the most glorious deeds. External signs are not enough. They saw it all, they went out into the wilderness, they saw more miracles, they saw God's presence come among them, and yet... In Numbers chapter 14, verse 32 to 35, that's Numbers chapter 14, God says this, But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness." 
According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, which is 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity for 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. They saw so much. But when God took them to the border of the promised land and they sent spies in for 40 days, they saw big dudes on roids with massive weapons and they said, I know God destroyed Egypt, the power nation of our day. I just don't think he can take these guys. I know he destroyed it. We didn't even have to fight in our last battle. I don't think God can do this. Through the unbelief of their heart, Jesus judged them. And the point is this, that Jude is bringing us to realize. Jesus saves. Jesus has always been the savior of God's people. Jesus has always been the mediator between God and man. And yet, the fact that Jesus saves, the fact that Jesus loves, does not mean that Jesus doesn't judge. Because God is love. And God judges. Jesus is love. And Jesus judges. He saves and he judges those who do, who do not believe. These are, these are undivorceable realities of Scripture. We're not told that today. You are told you either have to believe in full that God is love, or you must be one of those old styles who believe that God judges. But you can't take both. Fooey to that. Jude gives us both. He saves people and he judges those who do not believe. We stand on the word of God. There, there is no contradiction. That, for this, we contend. So Jesus is through Jude commanding from verse 3 that we contend for this reality. That a part of Jesus' role is to be the judge. We are told to contend while the false teachers are being warned. That those who claim God's covenant with their lips, but afterward turn aside, are judged by Jesus himself. Whether it's the Egyptians or that generation that fell in the wilderness, it is proven through historical biblical fact that Jesus is very good at punishing his enemies. Do not be one who perverts the truth, apostatizes, and walks headlong under the wrath of the King, Jesus Christ. But then he goes on in verse 6 to speak about how he judged the angels. So, so he first of all destroyed that generation, those who did not believe, and then he judged the angels. So look at verse 6. This is one of those weird verses that we're going to have heaps of fun looking at. Verse 7 is the real colorful one there. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal, eternal chains under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Now, there's a couple of different ways people will try and uh, uh, interpret this. Like, uh, because if we talk about the fall of the angels, you'll probably think of those beings that became demons from the first fall with Satan. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the, the first fall of the angels. We're talking about the second fall of the angels that takes place in Genesis 6. So can you turn to Genesis 6 with me as we figure out what Jude is talking about? Because I, unlike his day, we did not once fully know this. This is some new information for much of us. In Genesis chapter 6, we see the account of the second fall of the angels from heaven. 
It is one thing to wonder how the Jewish generation that saw so much glory, that saw the presence of God come down on the mountain, can then turn away in unbelief. It is a second thing to wonder how in the world angels who have been in God's literal presence can turn away in unbelief. Yet it is a whole nother thing to think of the angels who saw their angelic brothers fall away and be cast down as demons to then do it again themselves after being preserved that first fall. And here we are, Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. This language of sons of God there, is like, think angels, the sons of God in the sense that they are ministering in his presence, they are created very directly by him and not through birth, they are sons of God, they saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, we just love how, how colorful the Old Testament gets, but here's the reality that we have. In Genesis 6, we have angels in heaven looking down onto the beautiful glory of man. We know from Genesis and 1 Corinthians 11 that God calls mankind, that is genetic males, the glory of God. In them, the, the attributes of God shine forth. And yet he gave that crowning glory a jewel called womanhood. He gave to mankind, womankind alongside them. And 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the woman is the glory of man. So that she is the glory of the glory. She's the centerpiece of all of God's created beauty. You will never find a more beautiful thing in creation than woman. That's, it. That's how God has designed humanity. If, that is why we, we say that if you worship the creation, you eventually become a pervert. You cannot worship something other than God and not eventually find yourself the most magnetic, beautiful, attractive thing on the planet, which is human bodies, female human bodies, and eventually pervert all of your desires and become a creep. This is the end road of anybody here who wants to try and walk away from God. It is always perversion and sexual immorality, as we'll see in verse 7. Nonetheless, the angels looked down to see the glory of the glory of God on the earth. They lusted after them to some degree, and they decided to come to the earth, take on human forms, and bed these women, take them as wives, and they made children called the Nephilim, these, these half-angel, half-human hybrids, which were not in the image of God, which, if they continued to spread over the world, would pervert the pure race of Adam so that humanity would be, would be lost because they were more powerful, they were the dominant breeders, if we can use a National Geographic language, they were the predators. The human race would literally be lost. There would be no one left for Jesus to redeem because he was not going to take on a body that would redeem angel humans. He was going to redeem Adam's race. So in order to preserve the race, God sends the flood. We saw this. The, the flood of judgment that came was to both preserve God's, God's line, humanity, and to judge those angels that came down and their descendants, the Nephilim, who at this moment, going back to Jude, we realize, and 2 Peter repeats the same thing, that, that upon their death in the flood, those human angels were bound into a deep, dark, gloomy underworld somewhere. 
in chains so that they are now waiting for the day when judgment is poured out when Jesus returns to consummate his kingdom. On that day, he will judge the living and the dead humans, of course. He will also judge those fallen angels and those lust-filled angels now in gloomy darkness. There will be some people, of course, who will who will believe that the sons of God is just referring to the godly line of, of humans. It's not talking about angels. Job refers to the sons of God as angels. But also more, more compelling than that is that in Jude's day, the, the overwhelming majority of Jewish people in his generation believed that Genesis 6 was all about angels sleeping with humans. So, so that if, unless Jude goes and, uh, like, he quotes portions, part of what he said in verse 6 is, like, quotes from some of the other uh, uh, Jewish traditional writings, if he disagreed with them, we would have expected some kind of note about that. But here he is telling us that angels left their places of dwelling, their, author- their position of authority, and left their proper dwelling. To them, Jesus keeps them in eternal chains of gloomy darkness. So go back to Jude 6. That's Genesis 6, that's the background, Jude 6 is where we're at. The point of all of this is if the first sin that that Jude is warning us is in the water, therefore contend, was, was, uh, was apostasy, the second sin that is in the water against which we must contend is the sin of autonomy. The sin that the angels committed was, of course, the sexual sin. But Jude waits till Sodom and Gomorrah to zero in on sexual sin. At this point, what he says is that their sin, the angel's sin, which led to every other sin, was the despising of the created order that God had put them into. They said, I don't believe in this created hierarchy. I don't believe that, you know what, Jesus, God on the throne, I think that, 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 that as an angel, uh, it's more of a social uh, construct, this whole hierarchy of, of God, angel, mankind thing. I think it's sort of social, it changes through time, and I would actually prefer not to be in submission, but to, to go into the workforce. Sorry, that's feminism. What am I doing? I'm back into the angels. <clears throat> the despising of God's created order The despising of God's allocated authority is what the angels had in their heart, which is what erupted into their rebellion. So as God sees these angels, he sees those who were not willing to receive from him, the Lord, the gift of submission to certain authorities. They were unwilling to receive from the Lord the glory of the authority they did have. But desiring more authority... And rejecting being under authority, they came to the earth to try and rule in such a way is in this perversion of the gospel where they join their flesh to human flesh as a satanic uh, 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 facade of the incarnation. They do that and Jesus judges them. The reminder that is going on here is that Jesus is good at judging rebels. Whether it's the rebels of apostates or the rebels of of those who want autonomy and would chant things like, my body, my choice, my life, my choice, Uh, my my decision on who, what I marry, how I live, how our marriage functions, whether I'm in submission or in headship, all of that, it's up to me. Now, I might end up believing and agreeing with the Bible, but ultimately, it's up to me. This whole idea, this idea of people who want to reject Jesus' authority, and when we do that, it always dominoes and we reject all other godly structures of authority. To them, Jesus is good at judging them. Back in verse 1, 
and again in verse 24, we're told that Jesus keeps us. He keeps us in his love. He keeps us in his grace. No matter what we do, we cannot escape the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ if we've been unified to him. He keeps us. In verse 6, Jude uses that same word about what Jesus does for his enemies. He keeps us in his grace. He keeps those angels, he says, in the, gloomy cha- in the eternal chains of gloomy darkness. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going from, from his restrictive control into freedom. He keeps you under his wrath. He keeps you. He preserves you. He sustains you under his punishment. No matter what you do, you can't escape the inevitable punishment and consequence of rebelling against Jesus, the highest authority to ever be. Jude's point is that even angels, even angels can't escape Jesus' judgment. Therefore, you be warned, Christians. Do not be those that that despise authority and do more than that. Don't just not despise it, but contend for the goodness of Jesus' authority against those people who have crept in, who, like these angels, are despising the authority of Jesus. Do not leave your dwellings, your your God-given places, but remain there in humility until he comes back. Beware, false teachers. More on that next week. But look at verse 7. Happy June Pride Month, everybody. This is, you you okay? All right. This is, of course, uh, uh, the the month's uh, 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 catchphrase. This is the verse. If you all have a life verse for June, it's Jude 7. It says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of fire. The the, the theme is very obvious. The theme is continual. Jesus is good at pursuing rebels to their judgment. Now, Now, he is also good at pursuing people to salvation, and he does it undoubtedly. But At this point, Jude is is warning the Christians that just as Jesus punished in the past, so he will judge now and he will judge again. Contend, therefore, to save people. Contend to save their souls so they don't fall under the wrath of God. Contend for the truth because if we hate contending, we are likely those people who are most at risk of compromising, of falling under the judgment of Jesus, of apostatizing. Do not be apologetic for what the Bible says. That is one of the first signs that your foot is slipping into apostasy. Stand firm on the word of Jesus Christ and turn to Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis chapter 19, we read of the account of Sodom and Gomorrah under the judgment of God. In Genesis 19, uh, uh, we we have already sort of set for us over in verse uh, 20 and 21, God saying to to, uh, uh, Abraham, the Lord said in verse 20 of chapter 18, verse 20, chapter 18, he said, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, 
That's how God looks at Sodom and Gomorrah. Whatever their sin is, it is very grave. And therefore, the outcry of the earth itself is avenge us. Spit out these immoral people from our space. Therefore, in verse 21, God says, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so God, through his, his sort of a human appearing angels, send them into Sodom. They find Lot, no doubt, and they judge that city. They, they, they look around that city. They assess that city. Verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. So he's being very hospitable. He's saying, gentlemen, please come with me. Let me uh, uh, provide a dwelling for you. He can tell that they are quite important. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. That's like, no, we're just going to try and sleep in the main strip of, of Las Vegas. That's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to take some Valium, just have really good sleep all night right here. They say, uh, 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 Lot says, but he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. He wanted them to stay safe. He knows what happens to wandering travelers without security guards if you spend the night in the town square of Sodom. So he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all men who, uh, uh, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So this is not the act of an isolated few. This is the act, this is the accepted Norman practice of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 5, and they called out to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? It's worth noting that we're told that Lot is somebody who was, who was inwardly um, troubled by living in Sodom because he, he hated the practices that they did, should have moved and not just been there for the luxury. Nonetheless, he hated the sins they did and he did not join them. He was righteous in that sense. So these people who know that he doesn't join them in their parades and marches, they come up to his house and say, verse 5, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. The Hebrew word literally means having deep relationships with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. Now, not example, just telling us what happened. Not the part where Lot is considered righteous in what he does next. He should have just picked up a sword. What he does is not exemplary. It's just told to us as a story, uh, as, as the reality of what happened. He says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Coward, wrong, immoral. Part of the example we should not follow. But so strong was his sense of responsibility for hospitality as was the case in the Near East, that he wanted to protect his guests. Only, he says, halfway through verse 8, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. You know what they just said? This guy's not even local to Sodom, and he's judging us. Lot, what business is it of yours, what we do in our bedroom? Judge not, lest you be judged, Lot. 
You hearing it? It's an age-old creed. This guy isn't one of us. You can't knock it till you try it. You can't judge from the outside. You can't disperson the, the other. You can't delegitimize our personhood. Accept us, you judgmental lot. This man is a sojourner, and he has become the judge. Halfway through verse 9. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they threaten him with gang rape. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. That would be the angels that have been sent under the, the, the disguise of men. They reached out, brought Lot into the house. So somehow they bring him through the closed door because they're angels and shut the door. And they struck them with blood. Sorry, they went out with them. And they struck them with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves out groping for the door. So even being struck with blindness, they're not going to walk away now. They're all the more enraged and inflamed with their lusts. Now they're scratching and groping at the doors in their blindness. Whatever they can grab, they will make use of. And so the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-laws, sons, daughters, mother, uh, daughters-in-law, anyone who you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Genesis 19. Jude's historical basis for using Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of sexual immorality and the kind of sexual immorality that is unnatural and particularly perverse. Go back to Jude chapter 7. You probably haven't heard this argument unless you go to seminary. But people try and say these days that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. There was a joke in that. Seminaries are the ones telling much of the lies these days. Anyway, going on. You didn't get it. No, no it's, it's too late. You didn't get it. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, they'll say that in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was not homosexuality. Goodness, that was, it wasn't that. Neither do they sort of push on and say it was mostly, you know, the, the fault, it was the rape. It was the, no, no, what they say is the sin of, of Sodom was a lack of hospitality. I would argue they were willing to be very hospitable to those gentlemen. <laughs> Nonetheless, where they go is they go to places like Ezekiel chapter 16, because in Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, 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 we, are, we are told of the, the sort of in this contextual comparison between um, uh, uh, Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, uh, God says through the mouth of Ezekiel in chapter 16 and verse 49 and 50, he says this, <clears throat> Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her sisters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. That's what they'll say. Verse 49 tells us that literally the sin of Sodom was that they were rich and they didn't help the poor. Right? Then you read verse 50. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. There you go. The word abomination. The same word used for men lying with men in Leviticus 18 and 20. Tying all accounts together. Of course they had other sins. You don't go from moral churchgoers every Sunday doing your tie and your dresses up to rampant homosexual abuse. Of course there's other sins. But even in Ezekiel, the, the, the notion is made to the abomination, the sin that was the great outcry against them. 
so they fail on that account. Other times people will just try and say, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the sexual sin, you know, this word homosexuality is not in the Bible. Um, and they're kind of right. Like there, there's no English word is in the Bible because the Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew. But they'll say, you know, the, in the 1940s or so, I'm sure you've heard all this stuff as you guys speak up about biblical uh, norms and the gospel in your workplace. I'm just, I'm just recounting what you already know. I will go on again to remind in the spirit of Jude. But they'll say, you know, the word homosexuality wasn't even in the Bible until like the 1940s. There's this, there's this whole conspiracy. There's a documentary out at the moment. There's this whole conspiracy about what happened in the 1940s when people conspired to put the word homosexuality into the English Bible. Before that, the word was sodomy, which isn't better, but then they try and argue that the, the sin of sodomy was just being inhospitable and proud, right? So we go, okay, that's fine. Let, let, let's get rid of the word homosexual. It's just not in the Bible. Let's go back to the Greek. The word literally means men who have sex with men. Is that better? We, we're more happy with the vagueness of that language. Like we can even get more explicit on, on what it means, but, but I won't because there's under 18s in the room. It uses the language of effeminacy, which, which can apply to transgenderism or any kind of cross-dressing, the language of men becoming soft and effeminate either in clothing or in act and speech, right? Unmanliness is a sin. And arsenokoitai is the language, or is the meaning of arsenos is, is the Greek for, for man, for like males, and koitai is the word for which we get coitus, meaning to bed somebody, to go and have that knowledge, that union and relationship with them. The Bible is very clear. This language of arsenokoitai comes up in 1 Timothy 1. We're, we're going to go there together. 1 Timothy 1. We're just doing the full slog tonight. 1 Timothy 1, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just and the righteous, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Now we're going to see what that looks like. The unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, the word arsenokoitai, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to self-doctrine, uh, to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, are any of those other things that he just mentioned, perjury, lying, murdering your parents, are any of those contextual? Are any of those historical? And, and now we've sort of evolved beyond that. Is anybody going to have a march and say that Jesus is, is totally okay with you murdering your parents these days? No. Homosexuality, or that language, men who have sex with men, is right there in the Greek. We find it also in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> and verse 26. One of the effects of worshipping the creation instead of the creator is a desire, a deep desire that becomes a sexual perversion towards created things. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is language of meaning unnatural, twisted desires. It's not just the right desire, like male to female desires, but going over the bounds, lust in the mind or fornication. It's not just that. It's a dishonorable desire. It's a desire that when it's acted on, dishonors the, the desirer. It's a desire that when acted on is going against the grain of nature. It's a dishonorable desire. 
For their women exchanged, verse 26, exchanged natural relations. So this is how we know this is the context he means by dishonorable desires. Even the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I need almost no explanation there. The only thing that people try and do and the modern day scholars will attempt to do is remove the, uh, the, the, the sort of universality of this condemnation and say, well, all of that language is cased in idolatry. It's, it's just the things they were doing in the temples. That's what he's condemning. But, but when those loving relationships happened in, in a normal context, that was okay. We just have no example in Scripture and we have plenty examples in the Roman world in which Paul was writing of any neutrality around this relationship. He says nothing of those things and only, he in fact doesn't, doesn't condemn relationships. He doesn't condemn orientations. All of the things that are made up by humans and irrelevant to this discussion. He condemns acts. Sexual acts are what is being condemned. And then of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We need to know our Bibles better than the people who come against us with lies because we must be those who are equipped to contend. Hence the lengthy study this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Just like Judas pressing, so Paul will say, do not be deceived. Every generation will come up with lies for each of these sins as to why they are okay. Usually it's the people who want to do these sins. Just a little clue. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Sorry, that word isn't in the original Bible. Let's uh, read it as our friends would have us read it. Nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Here's the Jesus saving, the gospel promise. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Back to Jude chapter six, uh, Jude chapter one and verse seven. So we see this whole context laid out for us, and in Jude's language, he says this: Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, now here's their sin. The first sin was apostasy. The second sin was autonomy. The third sin is sexual immorality, including homosexuality, but broader than that, all sexual immorality. Because they likewise indulged, is the language, gave themselves over to. This is language for like diving into. They dove into sexual immorality and pursued, that is the chasing after, unnatural desire. Same language as Romans 1. Same scene as Genesis 19 when those men came desiring those things, those, that gender, men, that they ought not to have desired. And what does Jesus say? He, uh, Jude says, he says, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jesus is not very politically correct. And love is not love. Some love is blessed by Jesus in the union with children. Some love is blessed by God by fire from heaven. It's not the same thing. Heard somebody say this week, if 
somebody tells you love is love, which is also the sin of autonomy, remember? Let's, let's just remove the definition of love from anything concrete. Love is what you want to love. Love is what you want to do. It is entirely autonomous, so, so it is that sin as well. Whenever you hear somebody say love is love, give them a straw, point them to the urinal, and say, well, water's water. <laughs> or do definitions matter? Do we need to go deeper than just one word at a time? Jesus saves, and Jesus judges, and Jesus punished. The judgment that Jesus poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, and remember, it's Jesus that punished them. The punishment that he poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual immorality of every kind, fornication heterosexual, fornication homosexual, rape heterosexual, rape homosexual, whatever it was, the sexual sin was broad and perverse, and it cried out to God. He saw a grave evil, and he poured out judgment. And what the judgment was, was sulfur from heaven, Genesis 19 tells us. Fiery sulfur had poured down from heaven from the Lord, the Bible says. Just in case there's any confusion. It was from heaven. It was from the Lord. Jude tells us that the Lord was Jesus. Archaeologists have dug up that area and look at it. And they realize that nearby there was a, a sulfuric composite which had, had somehow become superheated with this, with this oil and it exploded out. The, 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 this seabed area had just exploded like lava into the sky and it fell down on neighboring cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read history and realize that for at least 2,000 years, that is from the time of Lot, when, Gen when Genesis 19 occurred, up until at least Philo the Jew was writing in the first century, they say that smoke was still ascending from that block of land into the skies. So intense, so hot, so deep was the judgment of God that every person that passed by the general area for 2,000 years saw the remembrance, the smoke ascending. This is what Jesus does to rebels, often in this life, always in the next life. The call is always to repent because that is the sign of his judgment. Now, since then, since Jude's day, the sign of God's judgment and his mercy has been what we've read in Jude and in the New Testament, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that now we can walk past and wherever we hear the gospel preached, wherever we see Jesus the God-man crushed under the wrath of God, we have the message, God judges sin and Jesus saves. That's the reality we're getting from Jude this evening. He judged the apostates. He judged the <coughs> autonomous people, uh, the angels, and he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. A few takeaways as to why this <coughs> is entirely necessary for today as we contend for the faith. Jesus judges. We've said this over and over again. Let us remind ourselves, Jesus judges. None of this judge not lest ye be judged, but judge with right judgment. Ever told to be, be Christ-like? Good. Make right and good biblical assessments of things. Jesus is the judge. All authority has been given to him, and he doesn't just pass out uh, 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 tickets and rainbow flags. He passes out judgment. That is Jesus' judgment. 
Jesus said something about homosexuality is our second point. If ever you hear somebody say, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality, say, okay, I guess in his worldly, uh, what we have written down from his, his incarnation and his ministry, he didn't say anything explicitly about homosexuality. But Jude tells me that he has said something pretty severe about homosexuality in the past. I don't know, the burning heap of sulfur over on the ground. I feel like once you say that, that's enough said. He poured out fire. That was very clear. We have, a, we have an eternal God and the reality of the triune God, friends. Don't, don't let people take away your, your, your Christian doctrine and confuse you and muddle you up and, and, and become these false teachers that, that trick you. Jesus poured out the wrath. He has said something very decisive about homosexuality. Wherever God speaks in the scripture, Jesus is speaking. He has said something about everything in the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or not. Just as we said, also thirdly, just as we said the gospel truths are once for all delivered and are always the same for every generation, so also the demonic tricks and deceptions are also ultimately always the same in every generation. And lastly, we see this application that people don't progress. They're still the same sin. We're still the same sinners. The same sins of Genesis 19, the same sins of Genesis 6 when God sent the flood, the same sins of the angels, the same sins all throughout history are still alive and well in the nature, in the nature of human hearts today. We have not changed. We have not evolved ultimately. Very much the same needs the very same gospel preached. And this will be the temptation for you. Even if you believe rightly as a Christian, you will want to believe that the loving thing to do is to mind your business and love your neighbor through silence. But Jews' command and his urgency for us is to contend for the faith, the truth of God, once for all delivered to the saints. So I compel you to find today's biggest, ugliest, divine idol that people bow down to and respect and smear it, profane it in the most loud and bold of ways so that the culture knows that Christians don't just bow down to those idols that our culture bows down to. And how do we do that? We profane the idols. We tear down the town idol by preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Physical fights. Argumentative controversies. Do not do anything for the kingdom. What does something for the kingdom? What liberates people out of the spiritual Egypt of autonomy, sexual immorality? What delivers people, what establishes the kingdom of Christ is the proclamation of Christ. This is wrong. It's against nature. This is a sin. It's against God's law. This is wrong. It's against the gospel. But Jesus is in heaven. He is the king. He has died for this sin and every other sin. So lay down your arms, bend your knees, confess him as Lord. He is the judge. He will return, but he is now saving. Believe and repent. Repent and believe today, any day. But Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Believe today. You don't know if you have tomorrow. That is the message that Christians must urgently contend for and proclaim. Let's pray. Father God, so clear in this passage is the reality that Jesus judges. Jesus is enthroned like a king, a real king, with real authority, with a real sword, with an eternal condemnation to pass down, with an absolute and objective eternal law, and he will not let the guilty go unpunished. But all authority has been given to him. He is the one who will pass out all condemnation.
Lord, forgive us for having a a soft and effeminized view of Jesus that would never dare judge people, that would never dare speak against the, the, the popular and common ways of sinning in the day, but remind to us that Jesus is the one that flooded the world. Jesus is the one that poured out fire onto Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is the one who judges the unrighteous. And yet, God, we thank you because those of us who are praying for that mentality, praying for that reminder, we are remembering that Jesus has delivered us from Egypt. Jesus has, though he is righteous, though he is able to judge, and though he will judge undoubtedly, yet, Lord, we have received mercy. And we have been passed into your your grace. We have been unified with God through the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God. We ask that we would not be proud not be arrogant against others who are still in their sins, but compelled by by the fear of God, driven by the love of Christ, we would proclaim. We would not care about our reputation. We would not care about what people say to us. We do not care about what they said to Lot and will say to us, that we are judging them. Lord God, we hold objective divine truth that is powerful to save souls and bring them to God. Would you put the gospel in our mouths? Would you put the spirit into our hearts and make us run and make us work and make us build to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Tonight, Lord God, would you save souls who are still in rebellion? Would you save them because the time is not up and yet they may be saved? Father God, we pray all of these things in the name of the risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.